Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about... Um, what's that? Oh, would you look at that? We're talking about some of the minor countries today, like I promised almost a month ago. We have some Slovak-Russian troubles, we have volcanic eruptions, we're even going to be getting to South America of all places, talking about a crisis potentially brewing between Colombia and Venezuela. All of that and more, coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. So, negotiations right now are currently underway for Iran to re-enter some new form of the Iran nuclear deal uh, that was scrapped and early on in the Trump administration but was um, initially agreed on in the administration prior under Obama. So, now that Biden's in the office, he's trying to put this back together, it looked for a minute that he wasn't, and now he is, so we're going to see how this goes, uh, there's speculation uh, from good old Peter Zion that if this does go through, that it'll be more punitive on Iran, um, and there are others who are more skeptical of this, saying it's probably just going to give them more money, uh, the truth is probably somewhere between, and we'll just have to keep our eyes on the way this develops. Uh, speaking kind of of the U.S., a U.S. guided missile destroyer has passed through India's exclusive economic zone on a freedom of navigation operation, and this caused major, this caused kind of a major diplomatic incident between the two countries. Uh, now, why this had to happen? Well, why it happened at all, regardless of why, no one knows. Um, democracy, question mark? Freedom of the seas. Have I ever told you about my old friend isolationism? I'll stop. But seriously, you, you can see where I come from. It, this boggles me. It boggles my mind. I I really just don't get it. I mean... I'll just be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I know I try to like give my do my best to kind of get an understanding of things. I have no clue why this had to happen. It just seems unnecessary, especially at a time when people are so-called strategic thinkers um, who are in charge of our policy uh, regarding matters like these are afraid that they have pushed Russia closer to China. And now there's a Russo-Chinese alliance forming in the heart of Central Asia. Well, not the heart of Central Asia. In the heart of Eurasia, dominating vast swaths of that gigantic landmass. Um, if not directly, indirectly through their economic and military influence. So with fears like that going around and kind of running rampant through the minds of 
the again so-called strategic thinkers running our policies um why they would do anything of the sort to provoke one of the only countries who uh you know likes us and isn't entirely dependent on us for their defense why they would do this boggles my mind i don't get it i don't understand it i don't think i will understand it and uh if i'm being perfectly honest i don't think the people responsible understand it either but um that is that a bit of a bit of weird nonsense going on meanwhile in Tanzania, the Tanzanian opposition party leader, Freeman Mbovi, has recently called for changes to be made to the country's constitution, uh, specifically in a manner that would limit the powers of the presidency. Um, so, kind of like a reasonable thing. Maybe just because he lost, I don't know. Because <laughs> he's the opposition leader, not, you know, the leader leader. So it would make sense for him to kind of be opposed to his opposition, having excess power, but probably a decent development for the people of Tanzania should something like this go through. Whether or not they'll be able to get a constitutional amendment or constitutional revision for this to happen is questionable, but it's I guess it's planted in their minds now, we just have to see if they bite on the little uh, bit of bait that's been thrown out there. I don't know if they will. I personally don't think they will, but they'll definitely have this discussion. So, little interesting things happening there. Uh, we'll go on to a, another part of the African continent, to Ghana, who, in an effort to reap greater benefit from being the second largest producer of cocoa, and no, I'm not talking about the drug, I'm talking about the chocolate cocoa. They have become pioneers of chocolate wine and tea products. And you know what? I'm interested. I'm, I've never heard of it. I don't drink alcohol, namely because I'm, not even because I'm too young to do so. I, I don't like the taste from what I have been able to get. But this... I might buy this for someone's birthday. <laughs> I'm genuinely interested, though. That seems like a pretty smart thing to do, especially in, like, the terrain that they're in, because you're talking about sub-Saharan Africa, so that's, like, jungles, which were which are obviously great for growing cocoa beans in the first place. So then you take that, and you're, you're effectively unlimited supply of chocolate, and then you, well... You refine them into things that you can afford to make right now. I was reading about this, and apparently it's a bit expensive for them to try to manufacture chocolate on their own. I, I guess it's just one of the things we take for granted. You know, it's cheap for us, and looks like a couple of dollars, but I, the process is pretty complicated, as with a lot of things around. Yeah, it's one, probably why how it's made is so watched and probably has more seasons but this seems like a pretty smart thing for them to do. And maybe along the line, somewhere down the line, I should say, they'll be able to, you know, manufacture regular chocolate products like chocolate bars. So, well, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. And like I said, I am interested. 
in other news, the UK is currently mourning the death of Prince Philip, uh, the Queen's now deceased husband. And I have a little side note here saying that the monarchy seems to be in a bit of a rough spot right now, especially with all that nonsense surrounding Harry and Meghan. I'd imagine, I'd imagine there's some serious regret going on right now in the upper halls of the, uh, you know, the royal family, you know, obviously excluding Harry and Meghan, you know, the other royals. Uh, probably, probably really questioning, <laughs> probably really questioning if they're really b related by blood to these people, if they're really obligated <laughs> to accommodate them, they probably are, but I've, they've been stripped of their royal titles, so no special treatment, not too much special treatment anyway, I saw a poll that someone put out on YouTube, because YouTube's been uh, spammed with polls lately, Asking if they should uh, ban the royals, Harry and Meghan, from coming back to Britain. A whole bunch of people said yes. I initially answered yes, but then I realized that that meant they'd have to stay here. And I said, no, 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 no. You can, you can take them back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Now we're going to swap, what, swap regions all the way over to the Middle East where Houthi ballistic missiles that were fired at the Saudi Arabian city of Jazan uh, have been interrupted. So that's a good thing. That is a, probably a spectacular thing for people who are about to get bombed. Uh, is this some sort of final uh, offensive before they get smashed? I don't know. Saudi Arabia has been hinting at trying to leave. Is this... Uh, gonna be justification for going back in all in on the war who knows what I do know is that those Houthis um, I did not know that they had ballistic missile systems uh, I guess that just goes to show the power of non-state actors in modern day especially when they have a state backer to get them through so there's that but I, I guess the Middle East is gonna Middle East yeah. You never know who's going to have a rocket launcher in their pocket. Uh, but while we're still in the Middle East, Lloyd Austin, the U.S. defense minister, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he has taken a visit to Israel and basically affirmed the American commitment to defending Israel. And I'll make it clear that by American commitment, he is not in... <laughs> He ain't, he ain't talking about me. I don't see the need for us to defend everyone at once, literally everywhere. But that's what the, uh, but my opinion on the matter is not the current policy agenda, now is it? So he has gone to Israel and promised to defend them. Um, and kind of, well, kind of did what the Biden, the Biden, what Biden said he would do if he became president, which was to kind of rebuild the alliances that Trump was kind of veering us away from, you know, nice and slowly, giving everyone time to get their get their bearings together in a world without us defending them, and I was happy, and now I'm not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so there's that. 
is that Israel is still heating things up with Iran. Uh, Israel's in a bit of a tight spot as well. Uh, we talked about their domestic politics a couple weeks back and how a potentially unlikely alliance is going to have to form in order for Benjamin Netanyahu to gain a majority government. So, and that comes at a time when, again, they're having increased tensions with Iran, and I'd imagine the Houthi uh, rebels firing ballistic missiles at Israel's de facto ally, Saudi Arabia, probably isn't going to, you know, de-escalate things, because it's kind of uh, a point of contention that the Houthi rebels are backed by Iran. So, Israel probably doesn't appreciate the missiles going being fired at that Arabian city, even if the missiles were intercepted. Whether or not they hit isn't the point. The fact is that they were fired, and they're going to blame Iran for this. So, things are heating up, and America has, well, guaranteed, for the most part, that we're going to be here in the Middle East, uh, should something go down between anybody and Israel. Now, we'll see how this goes. Um, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Meanwhile, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, uh, gets snuffed, basically, uh, in quite a savage yet smooth manner. Uh, she was there on a meeting with Erdogan. Erdogan is the Turkish Prime Minister, um, and so it was her, this other guy, and Erdogan. They're all walking, they, you can see the video, they're all walking together, and then Erdogan takes the guy and, to the seating area, and there's two chairs with a table in front of them, where Erdogan and the other guy sits, and Ursula von der Leyen the head of the European Commission has to sit on the couch away from the chairs and you can see in the video when they both sit down and there's nowhere for her to sit she's just like um it was a it was, I'll admit it was funny but I kind of thinking about it sparked one of my personal thing, one of my personal thoughts regarding the EU in light of where the EU is, because uh, we've talked extensively about all the troubles plaguing the EU, not even financial, all right, we, we haven't even, we haven't even touched on that, all right, we, I, we've just touched on movements within the EU that threaten the integrity of the EU, you have straight up secessionism in the West, you have open defiance of their authority in the east you have uh turkey having set the example in the southeast that extortion is a viable course of action and you have other countries within the european union southeast debating openly debating whether or not they should start holding their own you know membership within the eu hostage for concessions and then you have the center who doesn't want to pay to hold the center anymore? So you have all of these troubles 
you have the vaccine scandal with AstraZeneca that the EU got into over with Britain and has lost decisively uh, to the point where European countries are asking for the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik V vaccine, uh, where previously uh, you you would not be mistaken to assume that they were Russophobic. But I guess, I guess they have no choice now. But just looking at all of those things that were plaguing the EU that we've talked about, uh, seeing this um, kind of made me, kind of made me realize kind of how, I keep saying kind of, it, it, it made me think about how the roles have been reversed. Because if you remember, Turkey, towards the end of the uh, the, the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, before the Great War, they were referred to as the sick man of Europe. Because they were on the decline, they were getting weaker, it was hard for them to just keep their empire together uh, and keep it cohesive. You had all these re rebels and rebellions in the fringes of their empire, and they had to keep putting them down. And the other major European powers said, well, we don't have these problems, and we're getting stronger, and you're not. So, I guess you're the sick man of Europe. Ooh. And it's, it's a name that stuck right up until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire altogether. But now, now it seems to be the other way around. Because now, Turkey is the rising power. Again, they were rising power in the early, in the mid and early 1500s. Um, and kind of the 1600s as well. But now, Turkey's on the rise again. And it is Europe who's stagnant. It is Europe whose economy is in shambles. Now, granted, the Turkey, Turkey is having a bit of an inflation problem with their currency. But look at what they have going for them. They have a strong industrial base. They have the second largest army in NATO. They have a pretty well-equipped army. And they, for the most part, manufacture all their equipment. Or at the very least, they could. They have the capacity to do that, similar to the French. And when you factor those things in, Turkey is a very powerful force. Europe is dependent on the U.S. for their protection, with, of course, the exception being France and maybe the U.K. They have carriers and the Navy. But the EU, specifically the EU, is getting weaker. The EU is getting weaker because of the forces that I've mentioned and we've talked about, and economic crisis brought on by locking the economy down. Uh, when not, when really none of you fully recovered from the financial crisis. Not really. Maybe on paper. But especially the South, where they're, even on paper you didn't recover. So, you have compounding economic crises. You have a demographic problem that Peter points out excellently. So, if you want to learn about the demographics of Europe... I suggest you watch any one of Peter Zion's talks where he covers the issue. Uh, you have bad demographics, an aging population that isn't replacing itself with kids. Turkey doesn't have that problem. You have countries having their industry 
countries in the south having their industry rerouted to the north and or rerouted to China through globalization. So they've been hollowed out. And what's left in the north is dependent on exports. Turkey is a, has a strong domestic economy. Turkey is the rising power, and the EU is, well, for all intents and purposes, dying. So that leads me to ask the question, and I don't know if I've asked this before, is the EU becoming the new sick man of Europe? And what happens when the sick man keels over? Who knows? We'll probably see something similar to what happened after, you know, Rome fell from prom prominence where you have successor states that pop up and they start dominating their region and eventually they come into contact with one another and fight or they cooperate probably both not at the same time but we could be seeing something like this um, and I'd imagine Turkey in the event that the EU falls apart is going to be more than happy to nibble away at the fringes in the EU southeast and that was an interesting thing that this uh, little situation this funny situation kind of made me think about but in other news the Nepalese foreign uh, the Nepalese Minister of Foreign Affairs Kumar Giwali has reached out to his Indian counterpart in an effort to acquire some of India's vaccines uh, and my question here is, could this give India greater influence in a deeply divided Nepal? Well, I don't know if it's deeply divided, but I'll say politically troubled at the moment. A politically troubled Nepal now asking India for vaccines. How will China respond to this? Ah, uh, who knows? Because previously I mentioned that it looked like the two giants at Nepal's doorstep we're staying out of the crisis and trying not to expand their influence, you know, at faster rates than each other. But this, this uh, could bring in the potential of influence, not, you know, direct influence and not necessarily intentional influence. But influence, nonetheless, that could trigger a response from China. Um, and we'll have to see how this goes. We'll have to see if they even get the vaccines in the first place, because I'm pretty sure India has an agreement to produce the Russian vaccines. So I guess it would really come down to whether or not Nepal has, you know, the legal ability to acquire the Russian vaccine. Or if India has the legal ability to sell the Russian vaccine to other countries. Uh, we'll have to see how it all goes. I believe it's gonna, the center is gonna hold, you know, and India and China are gonna stay out of Nepal, at least for now, to what, the degree that they have. I'm not, I really, we really don't know how far they've gone in. If they've gone in, I'd care to wager that they have. But we're going to have to watch, especially as that situation in Nepal keeps getting worse. Meanwhile, uh, in the Caribbean, St. Vincent has erupted. And this is sparking concern for everyone living around the volcanic islands. Who would have guessed? Uh, this smoke and ash going up into the sky. Probably not healthy 
but what can you do? It's a volcano. So, yeah. I guess a volcano's a bit better than a hurricane. But hurricane season's coming up pretty soon, so I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you'd call this an improvement. So, there's that. And, oh my, we've taken up quite a bit of time with the what should have been the rapid fire, but we had a couple things to kind of talk about there. But uh, we'll get into the meat in just a moment. Alright, we're back. Now, this is it, folks. It's the Minor Countries episode, I promise. Yes, indeed. All those weeks ago. Now, I want to begin the meat of this episode with something nice, something easy, something definitely not controversial. So, of course, we're going to start with Myanmar. Let's get into this. So, Myanmar. Uh, I've kind of been holding off on this topic for a while, uh, in in-depth coverage, because it was pretty new when we first talked about it. But I guess now we'll kind of go over what we know. So, on February 1st of 2021, the Myanmar military overthrew the country's civilian government. We know that much. And recent estimates uh, that came out while I was gathering the news for this week, well, last week for today's podcast, recent estimates came out by a rights activist group that put the death toll uh, directly attributed to the coup uh, at around 600 since the coup took place. Uh, And again, we've touched on this story multiple times in passing, though, uh, since it happened back in February. So what we're going to do now that's different from all the other times is right now I'm going to try my hand at gaining an understanding of just what the frick is going on in Burma. Uh, And Burma and Myanmar are different names for the same country. I've... Feel, feel that I should say that now so no one gets confused as I'll probably end up alternating between the two multiple times. So Burma and Myanmar are the same country, just different names. So let's get into this. What, well, I guess we should ask the question what sparked the military coup in the first place? Um, we have to go back to 2020 for this. So Back in November of 2020, Burma had their own elections. And in these elections, there were two primary parties. There was the National League for Democracy, the NLD, as I'll refer to them, uh, which was headed by Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, And then the other side, there was the Union, Solidarity, and Development Party, the USDP. Uh, the USDP is effectively the military's party in the part not in the power sharing agreement that was implemented as a part of military uh, as a part of the military's plan for the transfer of power to a civilian government. It had previously been a dictatorship. Military came in, uh, and the country's been under military rule for a couple decades. And so now the military is trying to make the transition to its civilian government, which I guess is a pretty nice thing to do. I mean, honestly, they could have just stayed a military junta um, forever, at least until they got, themselves got overthrown by their people. 
but they've made the decision to transfer to a civilian government. Um, and they've, they were making progress, at least so it seemed, until November of 2020. Uh, because in November of 2020, the elections happened. And it was a victory for Suu Kyi and the NLD. A victory, however, which was not accepted by the USDP and the military, as almost immediately there were accusations and claims made by the military and their USDP party, their Union Solidarity and Development Party, against Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy uh, for committing election fraud. Uh, I swear I've heard this one before. I swear, I swear. I just, I can't put my finger on it. But the, yeah, so the election happened. The military accused the other side of committing election fraud. Um, and it was a point of contention. It seemed to have died down for a little bit as nothing was really done which you would assume the military would do, because, you know, they're the military, and they were still really in control of the country, but they didn't do anything for a while. So it was kind of assumed by most people that it had kind of blown over, and they were just mad at losing, and then they accepted the loss. Fast forward to February, however, and it appears that that is not the case. Um, because the military, in February of this year... February 1st, 2021, the military, using election fraud as their justification, took control of the country of Myanmar. Uh, and since then, mass protests have spawned in response to the military's takeover of the power. Now, these protesters have engaged, so far, in what we know, they've engaged in marches, sit-ins, and mass rallies on the more peaceful side, but there have been not-so-peaceful run-ins with the military, uh, which have likely resulted in the nearly 600 deaths that I mentioned earlier. So, it seems like, well, it doesn't seem like it blatantly is, uh, that Myanmar is kind of a not-safe place right now, and they're a bit of divided right now, dangerously divided. Um... I don't know if India and China will be able to do anything about this strictly due to geography, but they can probably flex some economic muscles. Um, I guess everyone's in the region. Everyone in the region is probably watching this, uh, namely because if something goes wrong, the conflict can spill out, similar to how the Vietnam War, uh, specifically the Civil War between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, spilled out into neighboring Laos and Cambodia. And nobody wants that. Uh, nobody wants other people's wars to be fought on their territory. So, given how divided Myanmar is right now, there is a pretty good potential for civil war uh, at the state that they're in right now. So, um, I'd imagine everybody is on guard Nobody wants a civil war to spill over into their country. Uh, and I'd imagine that that civil war could be sparked by outside interference. Now, like Nepal, 
it seems that Burma's being left alone for now. And I say left alone as in, you know, material and direct, you know, actions toward it. And I guess that's as, that's as far as the being left alone goes. Because outside of that, you have economic sanctions, you have uh, denun- denunciations coming primarily from Western countries like America, Canada, and Britain, I believe, who have denounced the coup and are sanctioning members within the Burmese military who are a part of it, and they're putting restrictions on trade and uh, the economy, so there's that. It's a pretty it's a pretty tough and rough moment that Myanmar is in right now that unless the military is able to really really prove and I mean hard evidence prove undeniable evidence prove that Suki and her National League for Democracy committed election fraud then all they're doing is just taking power back because they were mad that they lost the election. Uh, setting themselves back um, from that whole, you know, civilian rule thing that they were trying to get at. That's that, uh, That's really what it boils down to in the end if they don't have the evidence to back up all this heat. If they don't have it, well, then they're no better than the people that they're accusing of committing election fraud. Because what you're really doing, if you don't have the proof, is you're really sabotaging, at this point, since you've taken over the government, you've sabotaged the democracy. There is no democracy now. So, we'll have to see what the military does. They're still making arrests from people who were in the government. Um, Yeah, it seems... And I guess, given the similarities between the whole election fraud thing between Myanmar and America, I guess it raises the question, will the military here do something similar, especially if Myanmar uh, actually does find, or maybe their military already has hard proof of you know, election fraud, but they're still making arrests right now? We'll have to see. We'll have to see. It's definitely the parallels are there. All right, we we can definitely see the parallels. Um, how deep those parallels go is the question. I don't know if the military will intervene here, but the claims are there, and there are still ongoing cases regarding the 2020 election. I'm hearing that there are audits going on in counties in like Arizona. Georgia and New Hampshire, I believe. I think Michigan and Pennsylvania as well. But I know Arizona, Georgia, and New Hampshire for sure are going through with forensic audits at this point. They're at that stage. Uh, they're not; Those audits aren't complete, so we'll have to see what happens. But the 2020 elections in America is still kind of undecided right now. At least the issue isn't settled, I'll say that much. So the potential for something like this happening in America is technically still there. So I guess it's decently important to take a look at what may end up being our future. Um, yeah. Now, I'll say that 
in light of all the protests and the deaths, that it would seem as though the Burmese military is making a half-decent effort to not harm their own people. I, I believe that that credit should go to where the credit is due. Now, that being said, I, want, I also want to put a very heavy emphasis on the half-decent part, as live rounds have been used, and again, 600 people have died. So, I can't give too much credit, but eh, I guess, again, we're, we're going to have to see, because they have to produce the evidence, otherwise they're just doing this to do this, uh, because they lost the election. But that's Burma. Nice and not controversial. Let's move on to another not controversial country. Russia. But, but not specifically Russia. It's really uh, Slovakia and Russia. Because Slovakia is in some hot water with Russia. <clears throat> now, Russia previously has asked Slovakia to return vaccines over contract violations. Um, Slovakia was allowed to have some Sputnik V vaccines and they violated the contract and now the Russians want them to send the vaccines back. And that's probably not going to happen given how desperate these countries are for their vaccines. Uh, uh, that's probably... I don't know what the Russians are expecting to gain out of this, other than uh, to see whether to gauge whether or not Slovakia is really a friend. I don't know. Uh, I I personally don't believe they're going to get the vaccines back, but maybe they will. You never know. I don't think they will. But this comes after the Slo after Slovakia has allegedly tested the Sputnik V vaccine in a lab and then proceeded to denigrate the effectiveness of the vaccine, and I suppose that that, either, one of the two, probably the testing of the vaccine in the lab is what breached the contract, because that is technically the intellectual property of the Sputnik V vaccine company, well, not the company, whoever manufactures, whoever produced, god dang it, Whoever owns the license, whoever owns the patent, there we go, whoever owns the patent to the Sputnik V vaccine, um, the specific, um, the specific dosage, dosage, hold on, I'm, I'm trying to gather my words here, um, the specifics of what's inside the vaccine, the dead virus strains, uh, what proportion of them there are, what specific breed of the virus that is being used in the vaccine, um, how it, how alive those strains are, because, you know, dead and damaged vaccine strains kind of work just the same. They give your body the uh, ability to fight the virus off because the virus isn't at full strength. And your body doesn't care if the virus is at full strength or not. It'll give you the immunity regardless if it wins. So technically, testing the vaccine in a lab is a violation of the intellectual property of the vaccine. So you have that. 
And then Slovakian media went on to denigrate the effectiveness of the vaccine and question uh, the usefulness of the vaccine, to which Slovakia itself denies. Um, and now you have a falling out between Russia and Slovakia. And I'll add that this seems like an odd contrast to many other stories, especially the ones regarding the Sputnik V vaccine, where countries usually seem as frenzied to get the damn thing as a drug addict is when they can't find their uh, <clears throat> when they can't find their stimulant of choice, or as some would say, their drugs. The <laughs> so this seems like a really odd contrast that goes in the complete opposite direction to where they have it, they got it pretty easily, and now they're denigrating it, whereas other countries are struggling to get it, and they're wolfing it down to try to vaccinate their populations. So, it was a pretty interesting story, I've noticed. We got little tiny Slovakia here making the news on the podcast. But now, uh, we're gonna... Actually, we'll skip over that one and kind of touch up on Turkey. Now, Turkey isn't exactly a minor country, but they've been doing some things that I felt should be talked about, and we'll finish off with countries who are minor countries in light of today's theme, which is the minor countries of the world. So, Turkey uh, has recently destroyed an underground Syrian border tunnel. An underground tunnel on the Syrian border. There we go. And that was pre previously used to traffic people across the border from Syria into Turkey. Uh, and this is kind of significant as they, they're they effectively slowing the flow of migrants and refugees that go through Turkey to get into Europe. Uh, the last time the Turks opened the floodgates, uh, Greece built a wall to stop them. So the refugees who go to Turkey aren't going to Europe, they're kind of stuck in Turkey, and I'd imagine the Turks don't really appreciate having all these homeless people uh, streaming into their country and just sitting there, That they have, and then they have to pay for. Now granted, the Turks themselves aren't paying for this, they get the EU to pay them to house these people, and the EU is more than happy to pay up, much to the dismay of the countries that border Turkey, the EU countries that border Turkey, like, for instance, Greece. But, uh, now that they're blowing up tunnels, I'd imagine that the phase of being open towards migration uh, and refugees has even reached as far away as Turkey, uh, who was previously taking full advantage of the situation to extort Europe and that's probably where the southeastern EU countries got the idea to extort the European government uh, in their own unique little way. So there's that. Um, yeah, there, that's an interesting story, which in light of the broader refugee crisis has a bit more meaning than what it would otherwise be. You also have Erdogan visiting Ukraine. And this meeting that he had with Zelensky was kind of an important one. Uh, they made a joint declaration, which was signed, and it basically affirmed Turkey's support for the Ukraine and the Ukraine's claims to its rebel provinces 
in the ongoing Donbass war. Uh, and I guess, given the timing of this, it's kind of a an affront to the rebels and Russia, given that the crisis seems to have been heating up lately. Um, there's been lots of shelling and fire on the contact line, which is where the effective jurisdictions of the two sides meet. Uh, and they have really long trenches, like it's literal trench warfare over there. And they've been shelling, which means they've been firing artillery at one another. Um, so far, I haven't seen stories of them using drones yet. Cause, uh, and the reason I bring up drones is because, well, the last time we had a war to look at, it was the Armenia and Azerbaijan war, where they were shelling people and each other a lot, but ultimately it was drones who kind of turned the tide of the war in Azerbaijan's favor. Uh, and Armenia had failed to accommodate drones into their strategy, and this new technology kind of wrecked their tank forces, especially given the more out-of-date tanks that the two sides were using. So... I guess, again, Armenia got uh, bailed out by Russia, who promptly occupied the region to keep them from fighting each other. Uh, Russia is the real winner of the war, in my opinion. Um, and I'll stand by that. <laughs> and I believe more and more people who analyze the war will also see why I would say that. But... Looking at the war itself and its implications, drones played a key factor in Azerbaijan, who would usually lose these types of wars against Armenia, uh, being able to best the Armenian forces. So, here in eastern Ukraine, it is interesting that we have kind of like a similar situation, uh, except in more flat terrain. It's kind of forested, semi-forested. It's e eastern Ukraine, not like central, wide-open, flat Ukraine. But it's snowy out, though. It's snowy. The snow hasn't melted quite yet. But regardless, it just it made me think about the Armenia-Azerbaijan war and made me question what happens should either side start to introduce some of the more modern weapons of war, like, of course, drones. And the Russians can supply them with drones. I know the Americans can supply the Ukrainians with drones, but they haven't. And even if they did, the Russian anti-air systems would shoot them out the sky. So the real question is, will the Russians catch up in the drone game and supply them to the Donbass? Because Russia is not opposed to selling weapons to the rebels. Will that happen? And when that, if that happens, I said when... I guess maybe we could say when, but in the event that something like that happens, and this ceasefire that's constantly broken by the constant shelling uh, really does break indefinitely, and there's fighting, like real, real fighting, who's gonna, who's gonna come out on top? And I guess that question will be settled by who has the drones and that question is probably already answered. But I guess then the question is, who has control over the skies? That's the real question. Because even without a proper air power, the rebels have the air power 
just courtesy of the Russian anti-air systems, the S-400s and S-500s. So now you have Turkey stepping in. Turkey supplied the drones to Azer- yeah, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan won before Russia stepped in and <laughs> stole the title of winner. So with Turkey backing up the Ukrainian government, will Turkey give them drones? And will it be enough to overcome the Russian air defense uh, line? Maybe, maybe not. I'd imagine if the Russians do the same for the rebels, it's going to be a completely different story because the Ukrainians can't fight back. They don't have an S-500. They don't have those types of things. And it seems like they... uh, Well, I guess it makes sense that they wouldn't. It's not like the rebels have much of an air force. But the Ukrainians don't have an Air Force either anymore at the moment. So, just very, very interesting thing to see Turkey stepping in here at a very interesting time in this conflict. Uh, And I guess Ukraine is a bit of a minor country, so I guess it fits. I guess it fits. But now, we're going to get into the story that most caught my attention today. Well, not today, but when I was gathering up the news for today's episode. And that is a conflict. Not like a shooting war, but a conflict. uh, Diplomatic right now between Colombia and Venezuela. And what's happened here is that Diosdado Cabello, Diosdado Cabello, the leader of Venezuela's Socialist Party, he has come out and stated that any possible confrontation with the U.S. would take place in Colombian territory. Now, what could drive this man to make such a provocative statement like this? Any possible confrontation with the U.S. would take place in Colombian territory. Why would he say that? Uh, Cabello... Cabello also said that Colombia is paving the way for the U.S. to attack Venezuela. Again, why would he say this? Uh, The Colombian government responded to this, saying they responded to the rising tension, largely provoked by this rhetoric coming out of Venezuela, by placing 90 Marines on the border. And again, it just leads to the question... Why is this happening? The situation, from my understanding, arose from a series of clashes along the border between Colombian criminal groups and the Venezuelan military. So, for those who do not know, the border between Venezuela and Colombia is mountainous and jungles. So, it should be easy to establish, you know, where the boundaries are. But it's a jungle, so no one really knows. And like the, and then you have criminals who don't really care. And they're getting into shootouts with the military of Venezuela on the border. So now you have, you have problems between the two governments. And the U.S. Is, recently has been getting friendlier with the Colombian government. Uh, and Peter Zion noted this. To my confusion back in the day when I first came across Peter, but eh, America's uh, more invested now in Colombia than they are in Venezuela, so 
I'd imagine if things actually did come to blows between the two, you'd have America either playing mediator or blatantly stepping in on Colombia's side to flatten what was left of Venezuela and probably go on a nation-building episode in the country. Because the country's in... Uh, Venezuela is in some dire straits. We'll, we'll say that much. They are in some dire straits. They have super-duper hyperinflation. They have a corrupt government uh, run by the socialists who've run the economy into the ground. Um, I guess we're on track for that ourselves. Look at these gas prices. Man, I've never been happier that I walked to work. But uh, look at these gas prices going up. Ooh, could we be seeing something like this too? Who knows? Alright, I just know that gas prices were on average like two, around two and a gallon a couple months ago. But then something changed. Maybe the election. But um, what we have here is a potential conflict brewing between two South American countries. Now, South America usually doesn't get talked about at all in geopolitical terms. It's so isolated from the rest of the world. And what happens here usually doesn't affect the rest of the world. I mean, I guess it did back when in the Age of Discovery and the early colonial era, where you had the Spanish taking control over vast swaths of the Latin America and gaining riches to become the dominant power in Europe. So I guess back then it had an impact on what happened in Europe. But right now they're left to their own devices and, well, they're so far out of everyone else's way that it kind of doesn't matter what they do. But here we have something interesting. Uh, something I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have predicted, especially for it to go down this way. Uh, and you give that these criminal elements have probably been doing this and operating or trans operating across the border between the two countries for a while now because Colombia does have a drug problem as they're infamous for um, I guess why now is kind of a question but I guess anybody will get tired of criminals crossing your border eventually and then got into a scuffle with the Venezuelan military, and now Colombia is sending Marines to their border with Venezuela. 90 Marines, specifically. Will they send the army? Who knows? It's jungle we're talking about, so large deployments are probably expensive and probably not effective, given the terrain. So there's that to consider as well. But it's definitely an escalation... And definitely something to keep our eyes on, because in this region of the world, uh, anything that happens will immediately draw the ire of the American government, and kind of rightfully so. This is our neighborhood. This is like the one area of the world that I would, you know, actually care about, you know. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I like the rest of the world, but they're so far away, man. <laughs> So, but given the proximity to the U.S. homeland, it would be natural that this sparks a response from the U.S. government uh, should anything go wrong. Because uh, if anything goes wrong, you'll, have, you'll definitely have foreign players who will try to step in and throw their weight behind 
certain countries, like we saw with the Cuban Missile Crisis, like we saw with Venezuela. And I'm sure that America would appreciate not having any of that in its backyard. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure... I, knew, I mean, I know I wouldn't appreciate that. And I understand kind of the hypocritical situation given how we would respond to something happening in our backyard and then us immediately going into China and Russia's backyard lighting fires. Which is why, which is just one of the reasons I advocate isolationism. But, regardless, very interesting stories from countries we usually don't hear too much about. I guess we hear plenty about <laughs> Myanmar and Ukraine at this point. But not too much about Colombia, not too much about Venezuela, Slovakia. Uh, Turkey gets uh, plenty of time in the sun. But, yeah, it's always little things. It's always the little things. Uh, no, we covered that. And this, and I, I guess I should stress that this episode is part of a longer learning curve for me specifically. Uh, well, I guess I'll just elaborate on that in our closing segment in just a minute. Hmm. All right, we're back. And I guess I'll finish elaborating on uh, how the little things count, you know. Uh, I, I say it now kind of as like a almost matter-of-fact statement. But back when I made the episode titled Every Little Thing Counts, or something similar to that, and I forgot the specific episode title, uh, that was me learning that every little thing counts. I don't, I don't know if I stress that enough, but... When things that I usually like prior to making this podcast uh, would like overlook and go, oh, that's not too important. Like, what's happening with the big boys? Where are the countries that matter? But you see little things happening in little countries, and then they have effects on other countries. And then you look at where they are, and you see, oh my, this can affect this, and then this can happen. Oh, this made that happen, and so that's why this is the way it is. And so, when you look at the little things, you start to, in light of where those little things happen, you start to get a sense of the bigger picture and how everything fits in together. And if I went about my business and didn't pay attention to these things, they would fly over my head. I mean, just look at... I mean, I was paying attention to the Zelensky nonsense, but I didn't I didn't even bother to touch up on it. I didn't think it was important. But then you look at all the diplomatic fallout that happened because of him and because of the scandal, and it's like, wow. Even when I was looking at this, I didn't think about the importance of it. I wasn't looking at where it was happening or who it was happening with, and what that could do. I wasn't looking, even when I was looking. Because, like, I was I was up to date on the story since it broke, but I really didn't see the importance of it until it was important. And by that point, it had already happened. And I guess that's just a prime example of how the little things can turn into something bigger 
and kind of like I kind of even when you're paying attention if you're not paying attention you miss it and then it comes back and just smacks you and so that's why I've kind of taken it up uh taken it upon myself so to speak with my podcast to try to try to go beyond that uh it doesn't matter bias uh Because, yeah, to try to go beyond that little bias of mine and really try my darndest to see how it fits. Oh, this is something. Let's read. Where is it happening? What does it mean for the people around it? And try as I might, I'm probably still missing plenty of things. I can only do so much. But, yeah, I wouldn't be at this point had it not been for this podcast and had it not been for you people watching me i guess it's a learning experience for us all learning experience indeed and i gotta say a pretty fun one it's been fun covering these smaller countries and i wouldn't wouldn't have known about colombia and venezuela getting into it like this uh if it wasn't for again my goal my effort to try to keep track of the little things that happen in light of who's affected by them. So, yeah, a learning experience for one, a learning experience for all. But that's about it for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast with featuring the minor countries of the world on my geopolitical podcast. I promised it for a long time and I have delivered on my promise. Because the world is changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it and all the little things together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.